Western Christianity has spent the last 2,000 years telling everyone they're separated from God. This is Not Church with John and Nat Turney. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to the podcast. This is this is Not Church. I am John Turney, and I'm here with my brother, Nat. Uh, What's up? Well, so I'm just going to jump ahead so I can't say, say hello, Nat. I get yeah, it. I'm trying okay. to cut you off, man. Like, <laughs> it's well, either that or just go, what's that? You know, I'm just trying to bring that stuff back, you know. <laughs> we did a good job by just jumping Thank in you. there and making me not do that. So we, uh, we are here today with soon-to-be a new friend, author Josh Lawson. I'm going to read you his bio, and then we're just going to jump right into what we got going on today. So uh, his bio is, uh, Josh Lawson lives with his family in Wheelersburg, Ohio, where he serves his community in a variety of roles as recovery program coordinator for the Shawnee State University Cricker Innovation Hub. He works to connect people in recovery with entrepreneurial skills and services that will help them succeed in life. He also chairs the faith-based sub-community of Scioto Connect, the county's local opiate consortium, where he consults with faith communities on how to support people who use drugs and those in recovery. As an author, he recently published his first book, The Face of Addiction, which tells the story of 12 people in Southern Ohio who have been impacted by the opioid overdose crisis. In his follow-up book, Drugs and Jesus, which is set to release in 2022, will be the first of its kind to present a call to action for people of faith to engage in the work of harm reduction. So welcome to the podcast, Josh. Thank you, guys. It's great to be with you. Yeah, we're really, really glad to have you here with us. And we talked a little bit off before we started recording on uh, just some of the stuff in, the, in your book that I think is just like really crucial and really important to talk about. Um, but just as a starting off point, and you know, just for our, our listeners, so we have a general idea of who you are and where you come from, if you could give us a little bit maybe of your like faith background and then how you got to the point of uh, deciding you needed to write this book. Yeah, for sure. Well, I've... Uh been active within the Christian church, mostly Protestant, mostly evangelical, uh, really for about 20 years of my life, starting in high school, way back when. Um, I actually pastored most recently up until I think it was September of last year. Um, That was something I never planned to do, never had done in the past. Most of my uh, previous experience has been in house churches and and, and informal expressions, you know, of the church and the Christian faith. Um, I did attend Bible college, uh, did complete a degree in biblical studies uh, that I um, have been able to use in, in no certain way whatsoever <laughs> in, in terms of a career or making money or, or anything vocationally. Uh, but yeah, my, my experience there has been largely among evangelical Protestant churches. Where I'm from here, I'm more at the tip end of the, uh, the Bible belt. So think Southern, conservative, evangelical. That's my neck of the woods. So I guess just to kind of steer the, the conversation towards your book, I mean, I um... We were talking again. We were talking off, off, off before we started recording, and uh, we were talking about some similarities in my area. I think in, in your area, and I think if we really were to be honest, we'd have a lot of people who have these conver- have these stories where they can they can relate to this um, addiction crisis, whatever you want to call it, that we have in this country. And can you give us like a little bit of background as to how you? I mean, is there is there someone is there something in your in your life or someone in your life or some kind of connection that you have to what ends up being this book about addiction? Yeah, I mean, there are multiple someones. Yeah, and that's that's you know that's not common to you know unique to me. I think the the latest uh, broad sweeping estimates are one out of every three, one out of every two people 
uh, in the United States have been touched in some way by the opioid overdose crisis, whether that's directly or indirectly. They have a friend, a loved one, somebody they know who struggles with addiction and or has overdosed. You know, and I've got those people in my life. That's not my origin story, though, uh, for how I, how I kind of came into this work. You know, I, I, I tell that story briefly in the preface to The Face of Addiction. Uh, but for me, um, it started a little bit differently, other than my proximity to the issue in those ways, knowing people who have suffered, knowing people who have struggled. I was involved in a campaign uh, to amend the Ohio State Constitution back in 2018 in our midterm election. And that gave me some space to begin to devote time and energy to getting close to this issue, close to some of the people who've been directly affected by this crisis in my area. And that question kept coming up. Hey, Josh, you, you know, you don't have a history, you know, of, of active, you know, addiction or substance use disorder. So why do you care so much about this? Because really, when you look at the broad spectrum of people who are involved in this, you know, this crisis, um, there's not a lot of folks like me. I think on one end, you've got people with lived experience, those who are in recovery. And so as part of their recovery, they're turning around trying to help folks who are coming from a place that they have. And on the other end, you have public health professionals, you know, people who may, may be well-meaning, who may care very much personally, but they're also paid to care. They're paid to be there. So in between, there's not a whole lot of allies within the community of just regular, uh, what we call normies, you know, folks who don't necessarily come from that place. Um, but are moved to be involved, you know, to advocate and to, to ally with folks. And that's the way it was for me, you know. So when people ask me why are you involved, you know, I reflected on that for a minute and I thought about it. And the best I could come up with was about five, six years ago, I went through something that was um, a very trying time for me personally. It wasn't drug-related, but it was kind of an interpersonal issue that was very, um, very difficult for me to handle. And at the time, it was it was so severe for me that it was beginning to affect my emotional health, my mental health, even my physical health, the well-being of my family. And I just couldn't pull myself out of this dark place, put it that way. I, I read books. I sought counseling. I, I talked to a few trusted friends. And I just couldn't pull myself out of this place. And there were two guys who came into my life at that time who gave me the tools I needed to overcome the challenges that I was facing. And both of those guys were in active recovery from substance use disorder. And they were able to speak to me from that place and that road that they had walked. You know, they found their way back from rock bottom. You know, they had reached multiple points in their life where many people in society would have written them off entirely and said things like, lock them up and throw away the key or nar narcan them once and then let them die. Um, the stigma that surrounds people who use drugs and, and struggle with addiction in our society. But they, these guys found their way back and from that struggle, they brought the kind of insight into just the general human condition that was able to help a you know, poor old guy like me face down his own inner demons in a way that nobody else at the time could. And so I didn't recognize that like consciously at first, but when people began to ask me this question, why do you care? Why are you involved? And I thought about it. I thought back to those two guys and I thought, you know what? They pulled me out of the pit when nobody else could. They gave me the tools I needed to overcome. So maybe this was some type of... Uh, unconscious returning of the favor or paying forward the help that I received from those two guys because it formed kind of a conviction in me that fuels my involvement, that fuels all my work in this, in this field. And that's the, the belief that there's not a person out there right now with a needle in their arm who does not have the same value and hold the same potential to change the world, whether on a broad scale or just on a small scale for somebody in their life like those two guys did for me. So seeing the, the immense uh, potential and value of people who use drugs and who uh, wrestle with addiction is really what fuels my involvement in this. Wow, that's awesome, man. Hey, um, question for you. As you were talking, I, I, this question popped up in my head, and I think you mentioned the word stigma. 
So what role, because um, I, I see a parallel, honestly, especially from within the church. So I, I speak from a, um, from a guy kind of like you similarly grew up in the evangelical conservative Christian background, right? So people with addiction were stigmatized similarly to people with depression, where um, even to seek help for those things was to admit to some problem that then would find you stigmatized and further marginalized. And it just kind of that problem fed itself, right? So do you see parallels between the way that the church has tended to stigmatize depression and mental illnesses at, at the same way that they kind of do with drug addiction, where they can blame the victim. Hey, listen, yeah, maybe you have a drug addiction problem, but you know, who put the needle in your arm, buddy? Yeah. You know? And so there's Absolutely. a lot of victim blaming. What do, you, what do you think about that? Absolutely. I think there's huge overlap. Um, because, you know, if you, if you really break it down and you look, you look beneath the surface, in many cases where somebody struggles with a severe uh, addiction you know, to drugs, um, there's a lot of co-occurring disorders. There's a lot of things underneath the surface there that's led them down that path. Things that are not their fault, like right. depression, like exactly. what you're talking about there, trauma-related things, all kinds of unresolved pain that when you really break it down and shake it out in most people's lives, you know, their drug use and addiction um, is, seems like a logical response to the shit they've suffered and the things they've gone through in life. Uh, because we as a society, we as faith leaders and communities have not given people the tools they need to really, you know, walk that path of healing and wholeness. You know, especially in the evangelical churches of which I'm familiar, there's a whole lot of spiritual bypassing that goes on. You know, it's, just, it's just, you know, faith your way through it. Give it to God. You know, just right. pray about right. it. Name you know, it, all claim these, it. Yeah, all these cliches that don't really do a thing for somebody to actually give them the tools they need uh, to face down their demons or whatever it might be. So I think that relates hugely. You know, people see addiction as a moral failing, you know, as a simple choice. Uh, people just need to, you know, pull themselves up by their bootstraps. But in the, in the, in, you know, in reality, that's just not the case for the majority of people who struggle. Yeah, I often wonder what we would do with stories like, you know, where, you know, think of the story of Jesus um, being presented with a woman caught in the, act, in the act of adultery and his compassion towards her and her and his non-judgment of her and saying, listen, where are, where are your accusers? How would we rewrite that story as, you know, the Pharisees, whoever they might be, the guys look, that look like us probably, you know, drag some junkie to the feet of Jesus and say, listen, hey, what should we do with this guy or this gal? The thing I love so much, just to jump off what you're saying, you know, when Jesus' encounters, you know, chance encounters, right, with people in the street, what you notice is an absolute absence of moralizing on Jesus' part. I think that's maybe what you're getting at there, part of at least it too. The, the, the moral judgments come in when he's talking to the guys in the long flowing robes, right? And he's making moral judgments about their moralizing. Right? <laughs> like, listen, you've right. turned this into a, into a moral issue when, you know, and if you really want to dig deep into that, we've have, we have done this a bunch in our church lately. It's like the, the, the reasons, uh, the, all the interpersonal relationships, the way that marriage and, 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 and women were treated in the, in the ancient, Mar in the, in the ancient Near East. Mm -hmm. There's so much there that goes beyond the surface of a woman caught in an act of adultery. Who knows why she's where she is or who, you know, what circumstances drove her to be where she was. And it's similar to the story of the woman that Jesus meets at the well and, and speaks Absolutely. to her of her marriages and divorces as though they were somehow maybe her fault. And then anyway, so there's so much more going on. Um, and then I start to, if you start to even just extrapolate that a tiny bit with addiction, the point you made is a good one. I mean, I don't think most people just decide one day to become addicts. Mm -mm. There's a lot of masking going on. There's a lot of pain that's being dealt with. And yeah, so yeah. And, I, and I, so I think whatever, whatever concepts you're talking about here have, a, have a, the ability to be, to be played out over multiple different scenarios and say, how, how do we 
how do we talk to women who have to make the choice to or to have or not have an abortion? Um, do we make those similar moral judgments on them based on you know com- incomplete information, right? And go exactly. and then make our moralizing judgments. But yeah, that's, I, I think that's a that that's awesome. Um, Brad Jersak tells a story in uh, his his thing called the Gospel in Chairs. And I just want to kind of present this this image to you if you hadn't heard it before, but he talks about a woman who had come to their church group who'd been an addict and, you know, long story short, she'd gotten, fallen off the wagon, gotten back on the wagon. The, at, at some point in her deepest, darkest place, Jesus comes to her and meets her in her room. And he says, Jesus uh, picked up her needle kit and tied his arm off and injected her heroin into his arm. And she said, no, don't do that. And he says, no, isn't this what I've done for all of humanity? Uh-huh. Haven't I taken all of your pain and all of your shame and all of your sin and have I just swallowed it up in love? And how much better of a response could this be from the church towards people who are mired in pain and all, you know, in whatever spiral they're in? I just think that's a beautiful image of, you know, and it's obviously, you know, somewhat controversial for some to think that Jesus would do that. But I don't know. I just thought I'd throw it out there to see what you thought about that. It's beautiful. You know, unfortunately, where where do we often see, you know, our, our faith leaders, our clergy people? They're, you know, they're the ones who are dragging that lady and throwing her at Jesus' feet with their moral accusations, with their rights and wrongs and shoulds and shoulds not. Right. You know, and Jesus, the, that, that story from John 8, I think, is one of the most powerful in all the Gospels for the way that before Jesus speaks a single word, either to the accusers or to the woman, you know, in her condition, he places his own body down in the dirt with her. And until, you, until you're there, you have no right to speak about anything going on in someone else's life. If you can't perform that single act of solidarity, which is what the incarnation is overall, you know, God, Emmanuel, God with us, becoming us, sympathizing with us in all of our need. Until you've done that, you have nothing at all to say. And when you do that, what you have to say will be a whole lot different than what it was when you were standing in the street bringing that woman to Jesus. So yeah, sure. it's beautiful. Yeah. 100%. No, I love that, man. Back when I was preaching, you know, one, one of the sermons I did was uh, basically calling, calling us to action, right? Um, calling us to, to be willing to see the other, to get to the point where we no longer, mar- you know, we no longer look at them from the outside. And one of the things that I came to grips with and that I had to deal with was uh, once I was willing to see them in their humanity and in their, in their connection to the divine and uh, that God loved them, that once you get to that point and you see that you can't unsee it and it completely changes your perspective on how you see these people. And I would say that, you know, the, the, my issue though, I guess, and you know, where I guess I'm going with the question is, so that works for me. Like I'd say like 85% of the time. Right. And there's, there's still that part of me, unfortunately, the blind spot, the, uh, that kind of kicks in, the way I was raised kind of kicks in some of the pastors that spoke in a very negative way about specifically people in addiction. And I would like to say that I always see them as human, as human beings first, but I would be lying, you know, and I got to be honest about that and say that there are days where I just, I, I am, I, I don't know how to deal with that mess. I don't know how to deal with their problem, right? And that's, that's the way we put it, right? We become, we, we separate ourselves. So it becomes not my problem, it becomes their problem. How do we, I don't think the right question is how do we stop doing that? Because I think we're human beings, we're going to have that, that's going to pop up in us from time to time. But how do we 
how do we counter that in our brain with a better response, I guess, is the question I would ask, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. No, that's a great question. And I think you're right. You know, we don't try not to necessarily. We just be honest about that, that side of us. It's there, it's there in every single one of us. Um, and many people, you know, many of the guys and people I know in recovery, um, you know, they have done things that have brought harm to other people, you know, as a result of, you know, the, that, that drive and the addiction. And they'll be the first ones to talk about that and be upfront and be honest about that and not make an excuse for it. I think as, uh, you know, us, you know, when you talk about loved ones, allies on the outside, yeah, just be honest about that. Just own that. Just speak honestly about that as well. Try to remind, you know, ourselves and one another that, you know, the folks we're talking about here are, are bearers of the divine image just as much as we are. And maybe try to move the conversation away from, you know, them, you know, those people and just, and talk about individuals, right? Because, you know, usually, usually when somebody feels that, that compassion fatigue, you know, that burnt out, it's because they've had close contact that's hurt them with a few select individuals, right? So, you know, those few select individuals in your life and my life is not everyone, you know, it's not this big collective of people who, who, who use drugs or wrestle with addiction. You know, so, so I think the way we frame it, you know, just as you said, that, that conversation about the other, I think that's so, so important. And I think that comes out in our language in lots of subtle and sometimes not so subtle ways. And we need to learn to, I think, look at case by case what's going on here and talk honestly about that and not allow our personal negative experiences to translate to how we frame this conversation publicly on a wider scale. If that makes if that makes sense, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna get into some of my Nat's and my family history, but Nat and I have right. family members with with addiction problems or problems with addiction, and um, I would say that yes, that definitely has affected the way I react. It, it absolutely has to, um, and so there, you know, some of those negative responses come from probably my inability to be a helper in those, in those scenarios or that I, you know, unfortunately, or however you want to look at it, kind of gave up on those people at some point. And so I have a lot of guilt. I have a lot of shame in that I did give up. Um, I, you know, I can only speak for me. I can't speak for Nat. But then I look at the people around me. And like we said, you know, before we start recording that uh, this area that I live in has a pretty, it's a, it's a pretty depressed area. And uh, there is a there is a huge drug problem in this area, um, and it's so easy to get to the point where you just don't care. You just absolutely don't care about the people, but these pe- these people you see on the street, and you and you don't want to take the time to get to know them. I do deal with a few on a regular basis because of where I work and and the, and the kind of um, where my where my job is. And I have taken this, the first few steps, I guess. And the first few steps is to learn their names and actually know them and be able to call them by name and say, Hey, one of them's name is Kenny. Hey, Kenny. Hey, you, uh, you know, it's basically about him being there trying to get money, right? Because I'm at, I'm at work and that's a completely different environment than me being off on my own. And I just have to walk up to him and say, Hey, Kenny, you know, we've had this conversation. You can't be here right now. You can't be, you can't be here doing this. And it's just a very small, step as opposed to hey you or just yelling across the parking lot at a guy you know walking up to him walking beside him and saying hey hey man i just i just can't have you here right now you know that right and it's a 
And you do, you get a completely different response from them. You know, there, there are days where he's, he's, you know, using this specific person. There's days where he's in a really bad place and you can tell, right? Cause you get to know these people a little bit more and you can tell pretty quickly he's in a really bad place right now uh, because of whatever he's, you know, whatever he's on at the moment. But I think that's a first important step is humanizing these people, giving them a name. If it's, you know, if it's either their actual name or something other than druggy, addict, junkie, <laughs> right? Hey, you. Hey, you. And just taking it from there. And then, like I said before, once you see this, you can't unsee it, right? Absolutely. That, that, you couldn't be any more right. You know, what you said there, like, learn their name. Say their name. That, that's that's beautiful. I mean, that's the whole impulse behind the book, the face of addiction. You know, the face, the humanity. You know, behind behind this particular struggle, and we've all got it, right? One of my friends in recovery, he, he likes to say, "We're all in recovery for something." You know, and there, there's the common there's the common humanity. We've got the common we've got the commonality that we're we're made in the image of God, the divinity, and then we've got the common humanity. We're all in recovery from something. Or, or we're not. We've all got issues, you know? Right. right. Process, or, we, or we should be, right? Yeah, yeah. The process of humanizing people who are often stigmatized in society is huge. And I think, Nat, you mentioned the, the story of Jesus. Maybe you did, or maybe I'm thinking, making it up in my head. But the Syrophoenician woman, the one who came and called out to him as he was walking. And that's a beautiful picture right there. Whether Jesus intended it in his interaction, the, the way it played out as like a teaching moment, or, whether, or however you look at it, she calls out to him. You know, the Syrophoenician represents the other, right? To, to, Jew, right? to the Jewish disciples and Jesus there. And Jesus is on a mission and he can't be stopped. And she calls out to him. And at first he ignores her. It's like she doesn't even exist. And, but she, she persists. And finally he refers to her as what? A dog. Then she's a dog. Then she's something less than human, right? But then finally, as she persists even more, he recognizes her humanity and calls her woman. And you see the process there from, from stigmatization to, to the point of like these people don't even exist all the way to humanization, that this woman has a real need and I'm going to be interrupted by it because, you know, she deserves that. She's worth that. It's such a beautiful picture and it goes right along with what you're saying there, John. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's tough though because I know, I know where John's coming from where, so speaking from, and maybe, and maybe it's easier to be objective when you're talking about people who aren't your immediate family. Yes. So when there are people inside of your family who have the ability and who have the history of actually doing harm to you or other family members, and you know it, there's there's a there's a balance there between trying to trying to draw some safe boundaries and say, listen, I I love you, but you can't be, you know, you can't have this kind of access to my family anymore. Um, your addiction is not under control, and your ability to hurt people is ever present. And so there were dry, there were lawns that had to be drawn and say, listen, I, I love you, but you, you know, but we had to, we had to put some distance between us and some other people. Um, but I do feel like sometimes those, those boundaries, then we kind of begin to extend them to anybody in addiction. And obviously you don't necessarily just swing your doors wide open and let, <laughs> let all the junkies move in because, you know, that, that, that doesn't help them or you either. And so where does that, where does that balance come in? You know, I, between, you know, wanting to be as loving and as open as, as you possibly can to people and also then protecting yourself and your family, you know, making sure that you're not exposing yourself to unnecessary risk. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. You know, and when we talk about these things conceptually, you know, especially from a scriptural standpoint, everything is easier said than done. Everything looks better on paper, you know, <laughs> right. than, it, than it does in real life, especially when we're talking about people who are close to us, right? Yeah. Because that's what's the old phrase, familiarity breeds contempt. 
Never is that more true, you know, than in an issue where you've got a loved one who is in this dark place and people around them are being, you know, directly, immediately affected by that. And it's love to be able to step back and say, okay, this far, but no farther. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's love for yourself. That's love for the other person. That's love for the people in your family that you've got to care about as well. And people in recovery will, will admit, be the first to admit that and say that that's, that's, that's a good thing. That's nothing to be ashamed of. That's nothing, that's nothing that's the opposite of love at all. Um, so that has to happen as well. But yeah, I mean, it, it's all easier said than done. And I, I think there has a, I think there is a big need for people to understand the difference between enabling destructive behavior on a personal level, like when it's someone you're close to in your life, and harm reduction and recovery support as, as, a, as, a, as a social policy and as a general approach to life and how we talk about these things in public. Those are two very different things. Now, they're, they're, they're related, um, and there, there's a different approach, you know, but you, so you can, you can take steps to, you know, set up proper boundaries between yourself and a loved one while also maintaining, you know, the, the beauty of their humanity while also maintaining an open door, even if that door is, is not open, so to speak, in certain ways. You know what I mean? Right, right. And so, so walking that line, I think, is the call, you know, for, for people of, of, of goodwill and faith and compassion to, to be able to discern. What does that mean for me in my particular situation with this person that I love? And if you're not, if we love them, we'll be willing to engage in that, that, that tough discernment process and figure out what's, what's the way forward here. So, and just quickly, what, what is harm reduction then? Talk to me about that because that kind of rolled off like a, like a term. Yeah, I know. That I you know. Guys, no, so, that's cool. I just, I just need to know what that, that yes. I think I know what you mean, but maybe explain it for our, for our listeners. Yeah, yeah. So, and that's going to be more the focus of my second book. Harm reduction is, um, a kind of, in general, it refers to a set of policies and practices that are aimed to reduce the harms associated with drug use and inhumane drug laws. Okay, okay. so think things like needle exchange, right? Um, okay. Narcan distribution, which Narcan is the popular brand name for naloxone, which is the overdose opioid overdose reversal drug. Right. Making these things accessible in the community for people who are at risk of an overdose. Uh, fentanyl test strips, because fentanyl is in the drug supply now, and it's what's skyrocketing the number of overdose deaths because many people are using substances and they don't know what all is contained within the substances they're using. So being able to test their drugs before they use them, things like that, things that are just meant to keep people safe and healthy and alive in the hope that they'll get back on their feet or, or, you know, whenever they determine it's time for them to change, they'll be able to do that, but nobody can do that when they're dead. You know, that's, that's when it's too late. So that's harm reduction in a nutshell. No, that makes a lot of sense to me. So as you, as a, as a, in terms of public policy then, because that's where I think we, we come at this from a couple of different ways. We go, okay, well, the church has a role to play here potentially. Actually, it, it, here's the way I see it. The church either needs to get on board or get the hell out the way. So right. yes. either, either one or the other, that third, the third ground where they try to get in the middle of it and then actually F things up. That's not a good alternative. So either, either let the professionals handle it or try to find a way to join hands and be as much of a help as you possibly can. But um, as, a ma- as, so as a matter of public policy, though, I can see maybe maybe even drug legalization to some extent being part of that harm reduction. Which it was, does that fit under the umbrella of harm reduction as well? Saying, listen, we'd, let's take the criminality out of this. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Because most of the harms, uh, the, the, depending on where your listeners will come from, this may sound strange, but most of the harms associated with drug use and addiction come from the war on drugs. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. No, I agree. Right, which could better be termed the war on people who use drugs. Yeah. Um, like I said, right now, the overdose numbers are through the roof. Um, 93,000 last year. 
this year's numbers are looking to be even higher. And most of it is due to the presence of illicit fentanyl in the drug supply, which is 50 to 100 times more potent than heroin. Oftentimes, many people are using, they don't know what they're using or how much they're getting, and it's driving it up. But that's all a result of our drug war and the way that uh, uh, you know, our, our law enforcement chases after these substances and criminalizes them, which drives the market deeper and deeper underground which leads to rogue chemists in China who are, are just tweaking the chemical compound a little bit, creating analog and shipping it off now because it's, because it's still legal. You know, they've just changed the chemical structure a little bit. But every time they do so, it gets a little more dangerous and a little more unpredictable. And all this is a result of the war on drugs. Um, a safe drug supply, a regulated drug supply would end the overdose crisis almost immediately. And then we can attend to whatever issues that people are struggling with who do have an addiction issue, because not all people who use drugs have an addiction. I think you mentioned that in the beginning, John, and that's really important to point out. Most people who use drugs do not develop a substance use disorder. So we have to take that into account as well. But yes, yeah, absolutely. Decriminalization um, for the way that that contributes to the stigma that people in society place on those who use drugs is a big part of the problem. Oh, yeah, because I mean, think about the think about the holes that we dig for people. Yes. So mm-hmm. you, you take somebody with a with a chemical addiction problem, you uh, you you give them a criminal record, <laughs> which prevents them from finding work, which which keeps them in the system, which pushes them deeper into depression, which triggers oh my god drug use, which <laughs> you know, uh, and to me it's 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 one of those things that is so patently obvious. It, it's frustrating as hell to see people who and 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 then what what I what I think you find is that the lack of humanity, the lack of our ability to humanize um, addicts at all has, has enabled us to draw these really binary distinctions between, well, us and them. So, And somehow, because I use drugs, and I've used plenty of drugs, let's not get crazy, um, and I never developed a substance abuse program pro- problem, well, somehow, what, does that make me better? Or did I right. just lack yeah. the genetic makeup that makes me more predisposed to, I don't know, there's so much science we don't understand behind addiction there's so much there that we don't fully uh, realize. Um, why can I? Why can I use drugs occasionally and and not develop a problem? And I know guys. I know people who can't have one sip of whiskey, man, and they'll be they'll be they'll be deep in a bottle tomorrow, and they won't climb out for months, maybe. And there's so much more going on there, but man, it just uh, I don't know. It, it it so much of it reeks of 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 self righteousness and legalism to me. That absolutely. Well, you you just brought up a really good point too by you know you know delving into the the topic of alcohol, right? So so for some reason we have decided that alcohol is the exception is the is the acceptable form of our addiction, right? That if we need to drink our pain away, you know, that's almost in a lot of ways it's almost kind of manly to you know, take that shot of whiskey to deal with pain, right? And but when it all comes down to it, it's the same damn thing. You know, you're, 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 you're hiding, you're, you're, you're numbing the pain of something through some kind of substance. But for whatever reason, we've decided that this version of numbing our pain is acceptable, is not, a, not as big an issue to the point where we, we know that people within the church community have this problem and we, we will come around them. We will help them. We will do whatever it takes to get them off back on their feet. But God damn it, if, if they have a, a heroin problem or an opiate problem <laughs> yeah. of any kind, yeah, you know, kick them out of the effing building as fast as you humanly can because you know they're going to be a problem tomorrow and down the road. Yeah, and there, there just, are two, two substances that, that, that do more harm, you know, physically, socially, 
whatever than any other. That's alcohol and tobacco. Just like you're saying, I'm just, I'm just, just to echo what you're saying there. It, it makes no sense. And people do not think this through at all. The drug war as it still exists is based on prohibitionist ideals. And alcohol prohibition we saw was a tremendous failure. They, they at least lightened up enough to see that and re- reverse that. Uh, but yeah, it's socially acceptable now. But like you said, you know, use these other substances and now you're a moral degenerate. Now you're a monster. Now you have a problem, you know, that the other guy on the other end of the pew doesn't have, apparently. Yeah. Well, the other side of, of, of the legalization is, you know, they want to say, and I, you know, use they. And, you know, I'm going to admit that at some point I was probably in this, in this camp as well. It's like, well, sure. if, we, if we give carte blanche access to all these drugs, it's just inevitably going to make it worse. And we're going to see a huge spike in addictions. We're going to see a huge spike. But we know, and we now have facts, and we can look at numbers, and we can look at countries who have done this and set up a responsible action to legalization. And we actually see the opposite. We actually see that the numbers of addictions go down, the numbers of overdoses go down, the number of all this goes, basically, just basic crime goes down. But within our political world, in a very specific side of our political world, the conservative side is yelling louder that this is not true, that this is absolutely not the case. And, but they're not, they're not giving us numbers. They're just, they're just throwing out a bunch of fear to make people afraid of what, what the world will become if we allow this to happen. Yeah. Well, how, how does God ultimately deal with sin, you know, according to the, according to the large segment of, of, of Christian people and people of faith who have made up the foundation of you know, our system, even of government here in the United States, including our criminal justice system. Punishes it, man. It punishes it, man. Yeah. That's right. We got we to punish that shit. There's a short period of grace <laughs> after which the hammer comes down. <laughs> no more, Mr. Nice Jesus. We're coming yes. for you, man. Uh-huh. And, and un- underlying the drug war, the whole criminal justice approach to addiction, there is, unfortunately, a whole lot of bad theology, even among people of, of, of non-faith who wouldn't recognize it as such. Yeah, you're not, you're not wrong about that. But you know what else is all, it also, it brings up a, a topic that John and I like to talk about from time to time, which is, which is just how, pardon my French, but how fucked up our justice system is, our legal system is. So I'm a child of the, I'm a, I was born in the 70s, but I'm a child of the 80s, right? So I remember full well how big Coke was in the 80s, man. Right. And I remember a bunch of white collar, you know, guys that look like me. Okay, not anymore because of the beard, but you know what I'm saying? Guys that with my complexion, guys with, you know, who were upwardly mobile young professionals would get popped every day with, you know, an ounce or a gram or whatever of, of Coke in their pocket and get a slap on the wrist and get sent on their way. Um, and then somebody with a little darker complexion would get caught with the same amount of crack. Felony convictions, felony convictions. There are people doing time today, sometimes on their third strike, doing life for a simple possession. So what is this, how, how does this expose for us what the American legal system sometimes looks like for people of color and for people in marginalized communities? Yeah, it's huge. And, and you, can't, you can't talk about harm reduction without mentioning this, the racial component of the drug war. Because ultimately, harm reduction is more than just a public health approach to drug use. It's a social justice movement. Uh, and ultimately, if you want to add the theological component, fuel, a social justice movement fueled by radical love. Um, and, and you have to trace it to its root then. And you have to listen to uh, President Nixon's aide saying, we knew exactly what we were doing when we started all this language about the drug war. We were targeting the black community and we were targeting the anti-war community, the lefties, the hippies. We knew we, knew we couldn't target them directly. 
But we knew if we criminalized the substances that were prevalent in those communities, then we could go in and we could raid their homes and we could shut them down and we could do all this stuff. And that leads to Reagan, you know, and that leads to mass incarceration, mostly of black and brown people, proportionally speaking, which is yeah, still, yeah. still going on today. We're still the land the of the free and the home of the brave, but we contain uh, over 25% of the world's incarcerated population right here in the United States. And many, many of them are nonviolent drug offenses. And that's absolutely bonkers to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, 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 it actually just strains credulity. I don't understand it one, one tiny bit. But if, if nothing else, um, the work that guys like you were doing under, uh, seems to underscore um, how, much, how, how much work there still is to be done. Talk about this, though, too, because this, this sort of popped into my head a little bit. The face of addiction, you know, we talk about humanizing people with addiction problems, but how has that face of addiction shifted over the last 20 years, say, as we've gone from maybe heroin and those kinds of drugs being more prevalent to now the opioid crisis, which puts a whole other face on it, doesn't it? Doesn't that just sort of change the whole complexion of, of drug addiction when it's now doctor-prescribed medications? It does. You know, and there, there's a certain narrative there that I, that I do outline some of it in my book. But like you've pointed out, this is not the first overdose crisis in America. This is not the first opioid crisis in America. This is not the first clampdown, you know, on people who use drugs in America. This is just the latest wave of it all. And unfortunately, the most dangerous due to the continuing presence of the drug war and the proliferation of, of illicit substances like fentanyl and its analogs. So, you know, you'll hear people say things like addiction doesn't discriminate. So, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're white, you're black, you're rich, you're poor, it affects everybody, which is true. But we also have to look at, like you said, the racial elements and all those things if we really want to encompass this whole thing. If we really want to take it all in, if we really want to see it for what it is, you know, beneath the surface. Uh, but ultimately, where I, a lot of where I focus is that, just the destigmatizing, the focusing on the humanity, the face of addiction itself. Because I think, especially with my background as a faith leader and a person of faith communities and faith leaders are historically the people who tell the stories that set the tone for how we relate to one another in society. We're the cultural storytellers, the poets and the prophets. And so the stories that we tell and the way we frame the language that we use about our neighbors, one another, is what filters down into the public consciousness in a lot of ways, similar to like mainstream media, news, Hollywood, etc. So we have that voice, but unfortunately, the church is like on the sidelines with this issue. You can't find them. It's like you said, John, you know, get, get, get on board or get out of the way. Because if you're not on board at this point, you're in the way. You know, and that's, that's literally, I think, the last line of the face of addiction. I say, you know, uh, I use this tagline, yeah, Jesus saves, but so does naloxone. Right. <laughs> Deal with it yeah. and get on board. That's literally the last line. Lead, follow, or get out of the way. That's what the mm-hmm. old, the old um, motto of the, I forget which branch of the service. If, if you're a Marine, if that's your motto, let me know. But um, <laughs> the uh, lead, follow, or get out of the way. But the, uh, I'll tell you a quick story about, uh, about something and then see what you think about this. Because this is my... This is my experience with the church, limited though it is, okay? So full disclosure, this is my limited experience with, with the church and addiction. But I had a friend, I have a friend who is a recovering heroin addict. She's been clean off and on for the better part of 10 years, all right? She came to me about five years ago now, four years ago, when I was on staff at a different church. And she just sort of poured her heart out to me. For She's got a heart for other addicts and she wanted to run. She was losing the place where she was having her Narcotics Anonymous meeting. And could she have a meeting in the church? And I naively said, absolutely, let's go talk about it. Let's get it done. Went straight to the senior pastor with her and said, hey, we need to do this. And he said, no. no like no uncertain terms, no. And then like 
she's just sort of shell. I would have never in a million years dragged her into the office to ask that question. If I thought for a second, he'd say, no, it's, I still, to this day, I, I don't understand his, his misgiving. Um, but that was a no, you know, we had a church building that was not being used too, ter- too very often and have her and a handful of people come in once a week and, and talk about addiction and do go through their 12 steps and do what they had to do. Um, that represented a threat of some kind. And, uh, so that was my experience with the church. Now, what he did say was, had we wanted to start a celebrate recovery, as long as it, you know, it was a Jesus-based right. recovery program, he was fine with that. Have, and I don't have any particular axe to grind with celebrate recovery. That's it is what it is. But has that been your experience? I, I know that 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 soured me uh-huh. on that relationship in a lot of ways because I I don't think we really ever recovered from that exchange. I, I didn't. Yeah, I, I, I didn't see Jesus in that exchange. I still don't see Jesus in that exchange. Right. Um, but did you run into that kind of problem more mainstreamly? Absolutely. And the, and the correlation I've I've observed there, whether it's in the world of faith, you know, the church, or the, even the world of like the recovery community, the folks who present the most barriers and obstacles to people getting well are those who insist there's only one way. It, it's 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 my way or it's no way. You find that even among NA and AA. You you find that among recovery groups. You find that especially in churches and whatnot. Those who insist that there's only one way to do it. It's my approved way. When in reality, there are multiple paths to recovery and wholeness for people, no matter what they're facing. And so all of those options need to be embraced, accepted, honored, made accessible. You know. So that's just one example, I think, of a, of a wider problem that that comes out in that way. Yeah, definitely, for sure. But it seems to, um, specifically with Christianity, it seems to rear its ugly head quite often that if it's not a faith-based recovery program, that it, it's it's inevitably going to fail because it doesn't give you the one thing that you need more than mm-hmm. anything else, and that's a connection with yeah. the correct God, right? <laughs> correct, right. And, uh, <laughs> um, but, I mean, we see this. I mean, there are there's story after story after story that we hear and we see of people coming out of some kind of recovery program that that worked for them, and and the end of that is a beautiful story. And but it just seems specifically within the Western evangelical church that we we want to downplay anything that doesn't connect specifically to this God, and. Um, so I, I guess the question I would have is, I mean, should faith even be, I don't want to say at all connected, but should, be, should faith be like the starting point of recovery? Or, or is that just going to be maybe an end result for some? I mean, does it even, I mean, should we start recovery outside of the faith? Because inevitably our Christian faith seems to get in the way. I, I'm kind of bumbling this question, but I, I, I feel like maybe sometimes the faith part of it is what causes the problem um, that we are so apt to one of them to be, to follow our rules within our church, within our guidelines that we don't allow them room to recover in the way that works for them. Yeah. Now these are so many great questions you guys are posing and uh, I, you know, it depends on what you mean by faith, right? Right. Um, I, I think recovery is all faith, you know, from beginning to end, it's all throughout, but uh, that's that's faith in, in terms of like this kind of like relational trust and this openness uh, to 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 life to to other people to healing to wholeness. It's an, it's not adherence to a particular belief system, right? Which that's what I think what you're talking about. Many people would say faith and apply that. And unfortunately, it's hard to get past that barrier, even in people's minds who don't necessarily hold that view. 
I, I get that a lot. You know, Josh, why, why are you focusing on on faith communities here? You know, if if, if they're involved, that that's that's a no for me. You know, right at the right at the gate because they've been burnt so many times. Uh, you know, and I think with with Christians and pastors and faith leaders, we just got to be more honest, man. We're, we're we're more interested often in upholding an ideal than we are in actually helping people and serving people and let, helping people find their own way. I know plenty of people that have come through recovery, sustained recovery through Christ. Amen. Wonderful. I know other people who tried that and it didn't work, you know, or, or they got burnt in the church through, through that association and, and, and found faith through smart recovery, you know, which is, you know, more of a, like an agnostic based humanistic approach. You know, so am I going to turn them away? Am I going to exclude them because they don't share my particular belief system or starting point? You know, that, that's, that's, that's just terrible arrogance. It's the opposite of the spirit of Christ in, in every way. And so getting faith leaders and, and pastors to just acknowledge this, I think, is a miracle in itself in many cases. Yeah, it's a, it, I, the parallels are uncanny. Um, and I, again, I, 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 don't have a, I don't have a ton of experience in this area, but... Um, there are people in my church right now. I do pastor a small church and I have people in my church who are either in full-blown recovery right now or, or actually, you know what? They're still in recovery, but you know what I'm saying? Farther down the road than others. Um, and and then I have people who um, who deal with depression and other issues like that. And the parallels of the church's approach to both of those issues still strikes me as as, as uncanny. And what I wish, I, I would wish the same thing I think that, you, that you're saying as well is that people like me, um, people who stand in pulpits and preach, um, would know their limitations and would, um, would stop moralizing at people and, and turning everything into a spiritual problem. And sometimes there's real physical, physiological issues at play. Um, and there's no, there's no shame in saying, listen, uh, pray about this and then go seek some counseling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. pray about this and then take a prescribed medication if that's what you need mm-hmm. for this issue. No. I had a friend who had another, you know, one of his kids was attending a college group and um, she, she deals with depression. I'm talking clinical depression, you know, and uh, confided in the, in the young pastor that she was having some issues with depression. And his response was that she needed to have more faith. And, <laughs> right. oh, well, well, shit. Okay, that's, <laughs> damn, I, if, if only my therapist had known it was that simple. Just yeah. just have more faith and it will uh-huh. get better. Um, and she came to me livid and he came to me livid. And I'm like, you're right. You're right to be, you know, there. I, I won't dismiss spiritual components, any of this stuff. But man, we do. How often have we done that as preachers, though, as pastors? We, we've, we've fully spiritualized it and then dismissed any kind of other component. Anyway, I just no. You're that, that's my right. my advice to you, preachers and pastors out there. Um, stay in your lane, man. <laughs> right. You know, and, and if if pastors hope to to curb this mass exodus of people from the congregations in our country, become honest and become humble. You know, yeah. traditionally, especially here in America, you know, faith communities are more prone used to speaking to their communities rather than listening to them, and we don't take feedback well. You know, in, in the church. And, and it comes out in all those nasty ways, like you're describing right there, for sure. So, hey, you're, uh, so your your new book. Let's talk about that because sure. um, what what that doesn't release till next year, but we can give people a taste of of what's coming there. Yeah. So, what's your what is your new new your new book dealing so, with? Yeah. So, whereas the first one kind of outlined a little bit of my own entrance into this field, and and mainly focused on the stories of the people that I interviewed, and kind of centered their experience, and and was focused on destigmatizing through storytelling. 
The second book is going to be more of like a, <clears throat> like a field manual or, or a, a manifesto or a call to action for people of faith to become involved. The first book was meant to bring people kind of to the edge of involvement, you know, through storytelling, soften their hearts a bit, get them to see the humanity in their neighbors. And the second book is going to be designed to kind of push them over the edge and get them involved in some way, shape, or form. Because for all my qualms with the Christian church, I still believe there's such a tremendous potential well of value there in, in the spiritual traditions of Christianity, where people of faith and goodwill can engage this work honestly and bring so much to the table, so much to the table. So that's why I still try to do these things. And that book is going to be so much more focused on it. To my knowledge, there's not one out there yet like it that combines the world of faith-based activism with harm reduction, which as you kind of displayed there in your question, a lot of people don't really know what that term means. Yeah, because it's sure. kind of a it's kind of a growing movement right now. It started in the grassroots in America, at least during the HIV AIDS epidemic of the 80s, where people who were directly affected began to help themselves, you know, whereas the authorities and the public health officials were not. And so it's it's taking more life and more shape of its own now. Um, but there's not a lot of people of faith and faith communities involved. So this is going to be a call to action for them to do that. And what it's going to provide mostly is the theological framework for those who may think, okay, I do feel some compassion. I do feel some call to get involved here however I can, but, but they still feel that need to look back to the scripture, for instance, look back to Jesus and the stories of the gospel and say, is this justified for me to focus on this from a faith-based perspective? And, and going over some of those stories, like the ones we've already talked about, I, I hope to show in this book upcoming, Drugs and Jesus, that yes, there's a huge justification for this, that Jesus was all about the business of harm reduction. And this applies in many ways, like as, as you guys have already pointed out through our conversation here. And people of faith need to take this seriously. They need to take this theological framework, apply it, and then run with it however they can. Because people are dying. <laughs> I'm they're still dying here. before their time. They're dying in well, increasing numbers. And if we, no, 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 no. If we care, no, I'm just, I just, we can't just let that you know, go. No. Uh, Amen. You, Agreed. You said faith-based, faith-based activism. And yes. uh, it's, it's a, such an awesome phrase that I think the church has completely lost connection with. And when we think of faith-based activism, we think of jumping onto some political party, right? So we're going we're gonna to back a political person because, you know, we feel that this one is more Christian than the other, this other politician is more Christian. And I think that we've absolutely lost our way when it comes to what that, what that phrase actually means. And what that means is that politics aside, all of that aside, we, we aren't part of that, but we, we have allowed a certain part of the church to tell us that this is now our job is to become politicized and, and politicize everything. And this type of activism calls us to action in a way that says, no, you're going to look at people as human beings. You're going to find a way to save them, you know, save humanity. And it doesn't matter if you're a Republican or Democrat, independent, if you, none of that matters. But we've allowed the church to get in bed with politics, with politicians, and decide for us how we deal with these people. And I think a true faith-based activism pushes all that aside and says, no, let's first look at the person and the people in front of us and how can we help them. And so I, I'm, I'm excited about this book that you're writing right now because I, I think this is a question that a lot of people that, that were you know, like me, Nat, 
like other people that listen to our podcast, it's like, yes, we see the problem. We see this epidemic. We see it around us, but we, we just don't know where to start. And it could be something as simple as, you know, humanizing these people, going out and talking to these people. Um, when I say these people, and I even don't even like that word. I mean, that, that's already kind of othering them, right? And, and uh, you know, I've, I've mentioned this before on other podcasts that, you know, I used to be at a place where I'd say, well, you know, love them anyway, right? You know, they, these are these people, the, the people with problems, but love them anyway. And I, I had to get to the point where I had to drop off the anyway and just say, no, let's just, lo- how about we just love them? Not anyway, not because, not but. How about we just say, love them? And then we start from there. And, uh, well, now you sound like one of those one of them sort of lefty hippie guys now, John. Just, <laughs> just go around. Let's just go around loving everybody, man. Jeez. Yeah. There's got to be rules, John. There's got to be lines drawn. Um, <laughs> sorry, I, we get too serious. I had to throw some stuff in there. <laughs> Lighten the mood, man. Oh Lord, have mercy. Uh, this is all, man. I, I, I'm excited for what you're doing, man. I do appreciate it. Um, I wish I could speak with a little more authority on some of these subjects. I feel like I'm kind of. Uh, shooting in the dark here a little bit, but man, uh, it's it's all it's all good stuff. And I do see, like I said, I, I, I maybe that's why I keep drawing some parallels, you know, because uh, I I do think that these things play out on all kinds of stages because we do the same sorts of things to any group that we decide that we want to other in some form or fashion. So the and it starts a lot of times with with that victim blaming and you know trying to make sure that hey you know. They, they might be addicts, but you know, it's their fault. And it's, you know, it's sort of the same thing we do with some other things. So it, 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 it is absolutely a topic that needs to be discussed more. And I think it needs to be um, handled better by the Christian church. And, it's, and, it, and it, it, it bones me out because I, it, in a lot of ways, we're, we're equipped to deal with this. You know what I mean? In a lot of ways, we are. And, and, but we've sort of glummed onto the parts of us that aren't equipped to handle this. But the teachings of Jesus have told us right? That we're supposed to be, that we're supposed to be reaching out and loving our neighbors as ourselves. And um, so I think you're asking um, good and interesting questions and challenging us to be better at this, right, John? Uh, yeah, I, I, I just think I'd like to echo what Nat said. I absolutely thank you for coming on and uh, giving us an hour of your time. Uh, this has been uh, eye-opening for me. And I'd really like to uh, get you back, you know, a little bit closer when your next book is coming out, so we can discuss that book as well. But uh, yeah, just uh, thank you very much for taking the time to uh, come on here with us, and we really do appreciate it. Absolutely, John. I appreciate you and that. I appreciate the conversations you're having. I think they're very important for many people. So I'd love to join you again in the future. All right, all right. So uh, and then we'll def- definitely make sure to link to everything in our in our show notes to connect people with your with you, your book. Um, everything else that needs to be connected with. And uh, again, just thank, thank you for coming on. Absolutely, brother. Thank you. Thank you for listening to This Is Not Church. Be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. If you would like to partner with us, visit patreon.com slash thisisnotchurch, where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group, or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.